This is Indivisible Westchester, the podcast. I'm Shannon Powell. Hi, and I'm Acacia Bamberg Salati, Executive Director of the Planned Parenthood Action Fund. And I'm Amory Yule, the Chair of the Planned Parenthood Hudson Peconic Action Fund Board. So, Acacia and Amory, I'm so happy that you both can be here today to co host with me. Let's start by just talking about what the Action Fund does. So that's a great question, Shannon. So the Planned Parenthood um, Hudson Peconic Action Fund is a nonpartisan, nonprofit organization whose primary purpose is about education and social welfare. Yeah, and basically what we are, we're the advocacy part or the advocacy arm of Planned Parenthood Hudson Peconic. Um, our, many of our activities include advocating um, for voter education, grassroots organization, and that always promotes Planned Parenthood. Now, you guys are here today because the theme of today's podcast is about reproductive rights, which are facing unprecedented attacks by the Trump administration and also in multiple state governments across the nation. Luckily, we're here in New York. It's a bit of a beacon of light. One of the reasons um, that it is a beacon of of light is because we were able to pass the Reproductive Health Act uh, this past January. The legislature passed this act. Can you tell us, Acacia, what RHA is? That's a great question. So RHA is the Reproductive Health Act, and what it simply does is it codifies um, our, um, the um, Roe v. Wade into state law. Um, when it was passed in um, 1972, you have to think about the history. Um, these were some of the most progressive laws in the state. Um, this was because bef- it was passed before Roe v. Wade. Um, unfortunately, some of the problematic issues of the legislation was that, one, it was put into the penal code, and two, um, it did not allow any type of abortion care to happen after 24 weeks. And so what the RHA does is just really, once again, codifies Roe um, Ro v. Wade into state law, but also provides some protections to kind of get us caught up to what's happening in modern times. So one of the things is that it does allow for abortion to happen after 24 weeks if the fetus is not viable, if the mother's um, life is in danger, and according to the health of the mother. So um, I want to go back just to one point about this law, that it took abortion out of the criminal code and put it into the health code. Explain mm-hmm. why that's important, because I think that was something people didn't understand either. Right. So what um, the RHA did also was that it decriminalized um, you know, uh, abortion. And so I, I give the example, and, and I'm not going to name the couple's name, but you know, they really are in many ways the face of the RHA movement, is that um, there was this couple who, um, you know, was gotten pregnant and um, after 24 weeks realized that there was a complication with the pregnancy and um, there needed to be, um, you know, need to be an abortion done. And so they went to their physician and unfortunately their physician said, I'm sorry, I cannot perform this abortion because if I do, I'm actually breaking New York state law. And so you can imagine, um, you know, once again, this is a planned pregnancy. This is a pregnancy that was looked forward to. Um, and they're going to someone who they trust and believe, and that person is saying, I can't help you provide health care for you because I'm afraid that if I do that, I'm going to land in jail. And so mm-hmm. this couple had to fly all the way to another state, pretty much on the other side of the country, to be able to get the care that they needed, um, incurring a tremendous amount of financial cost to that. And so, you know, the issue of decriminalizing abortion is to make sure that we understand that abortion is health care and that abortion does not belong in the penal code. It belongs in the health code because abortion is health care. So how long did it take for this 
legislation to pass. <laughs> we've been we've been on the front lines for a very very long time. I want to say close from from 12? when we start uh, twelve. I was going to say at least ten years. Yes. easily. Yes. Easily. 10 to 12 years. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So when January came and it passed, we were basically riding a really great wave there for yes, just right. a little bit of time yeah. there. Well, this is a great opportunity to also thank the activists because they were just stalwart and amazing and just kept at it. And so it's really important just to thank all the supporters who are able to make this happen, so what, including indivisible supporters. Thank you so much. Well, I mean, it's always great to support everything that Planned Parenthood does. It's very important. But why did it take so long to pass? I mean, that's kind of when people, I don't think people understand that this was a, a, a long fight. This this just didn't happen overnight. Well, I would say two things. I mean, first, and, and you know, Planned Parenthood is a nonpartisan um, organization, but you have to remember, you know, the political calculus that was in the General Assembly um, in Albany. Um, although the Assembly um, is, you know, full of a pro-reproductive health majority, the Senate was not, and was not for several years. And so, what happens is that there was so much progressive legislation, you know, particularly legislation that was focused on, you know, providing the best type of health care and access for reproductive health care um, rights, you know, got stymied in the mm-hmm. Senate. Um, and it wasn't until this last election cycle when um, we were able to elect a pro-reproductive health care majority um, that this legislation was passed. And I was proud to say that it was one of the first pieces of legislation that was passed on the anniversary, the 46th anniversary, <laughs> of Roe v. Wade. I think so that's the first calculus. I think the second calculus is that um, came from a kind of national scope. Um, we in New York State are considered consider ourselves to be a bastion of progressive values. And we were always, you know, thinking about the fact that this absolutely couldn't happen to us. There's no way Roe v. Wade could be overturned. Um, and so, you know, for a long time, I think it was a, we were able to kind of be complacent about this. Mm-hmm. But with the national um, calculus changing and with the current president and the two appointees to the Supreme Court, um, Supreme Court Justice Gorsuch and Supreme Court Justice Kavanaugh, um, there was a real reality, particularly in New York State, that this was real. And I think that also changed the political calculus for being able to pass this legislation. So, Anne-Marie, did you feel this, the same way that this is now because of what's going on nationally? It was, it was, it was more than past time to get this done? Oh, absolutely. I think that after 2016, we were all, I want to say, almost shell-shocked. I felt like I'm still ex- exhibiting symptoms of PTSD at this point. And, but what it did, though, was it was a call to action. It was a call for us to realize that we can't take anything for granted anymore. You know, yes, New York has always been a very progressive state, and I've always felt that we've been on the cutting edge. But now it was time not only to look deeply at what our legislation is, but also, too, to protect those things that we know are going to be talking points in our upcoming 2020 elections. So that's a, so that leads me to another question. What kind of blowback are you experiencing mm. from the passage <laughs> of this legislation? I know we laugh, but it's oh actually not goodness. funny, right? Yeah. It's, yeah. Not, yeah. it's yeah. comical, though, it's and how ridiculous funny. some yeah. of the So, so some I'm going to let our um, Anne-Marie start, because she's got a great story yeah. about some of the blowback that she's experienced personally. Yeah, exactly. Um, so I am actually proud to say that that I am um, a practicing Catholic, and my family um, is also practicing Catholic. On the moment that the Reproductive Health Act had um, actually passed, I got a telephone call from a family member. And, and I, I 
I, it, it's so hard for me to put into words, but basically attacked me and said, I can't believe that, you know, your organization is now allowing people to have abortions right up to the moment of birth. <laughs> you know, at first I said, first of all, I can't believe that you really believe that that's happening. Uh-huh. I said, in what, in, in what sphere does somebody say, oh, you know, <laughs> I've decided I don't want to do this as I'm being wheeled into the delivery room. I said, it's just not true. I said, you know, you're, it's all being fabricated. I said, where did you get this from? And my relative says, well, that was the homily at our church today. So, and then the calls just kept rolling in after that. So to think that the, um, the religious end of all of this now is starting to interfere with women's reproductive health is, um, like I said from the very beginning, it's so very important that we take nothing for granted anymore. So Yeah, and, and I would just echo that. Um, I'm originally from, from South Carolina, and I got people saying, well, you know, Keisha, I know, I believe in your integrity, but I'm just... I think you knew, you know, you've been in New York too long because these, these New Yorkers <laughs> are passing these extreme laws. I mean, yeah. so, so a woman can, can have a baby for, I mean, can have an abortion, you know, at nine months. And, and, and you just literally have to explain. And so I, I just want to take this time just to, mm-hmm. you know, kind of cut through some of the one blatant lies mm-hmm. and just misinformation right. that's out there. That's not how healthcare works. All right. There's no physician, um, there's no medical provider who is going to, uh, you know, who aborts a baby at nine months. That's not how, you know, a healthy baby, (laughs) that's not how healthcare works. Um, You know, here's the thing. Um, So 1% of all abortions in this country happen after 24 weeks. And instead of demonizing these individuals, I mean, we should be looking at them with compassion and not judgment. If you are in your eighth month or your ninth month and you're carrying a child, this is a planned child. You've had a baby shower. You have <laughs> decorated a nursery. And now you're going to your physician, your medical care provider, and they're telling you that this pregnancy is not feasible. Um, this is the most agonizing decision that couples have to deal with probably in their entire lives. So instead of demonizing these individuals, we should be thinking about them with a sense of care and compassion. Um, and so it's just to me so egregious that they're using, you know, these stories of people who are just, you know, going through these horrible, you know, worst case scenarios as fodder for, you know, for just political, you know, just political misinformation. If I can um, kind of piggyback on that as well, I was listening to a broadcast on CNN and there was the moderator and they actually had a female chair of the Republican Party, um, of the National Republican Party. And they were talking about, recently they were talking about Alabama and the um, Republican Party uh, chair had said that same exact thing that, you know, in New York, whereas Alabama is protecting children, New York is killing children. And used those exact words. And the moderator didn't correct her. And she continued to talk about all those talking points that they take the information, they give you misinformation, and then they make it sound like it's truth. And nobody's correcting them. Mm-hmm. This was a moderator on CNN. Mm-hmm. 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 So that was that's worrisome. Yes. So what 
should people be saying when somebody comes up to you and says something that's wrong about RHA? What should the right message be about what it does? Um, yeah, so thank you for that question. It really is about attacks against women, about their um, autonomy, about their agency. And these are attacks against women, and because these are these are individuals who simply do not want women and individuals to be have safe abortion. It's as simple as that. Yeah. Um, and so you can see that pattern in terms of what's happening from the Trump Pence administration, because it's not just simply the bans that are happening in different countries. It's not just simply the trap laws that are shutting Planned Parenthood um, health centers down from um, different countries. It's also the fact that the Trump-Pence administration has um, released a final rule that is basically, you know, eliminating um, um, Planned Parenthood from Title X funding. For many of you um, who don't know, Title X funding is a very, you know, uh, important program. It's a federal program, and its only, you know, job is to provide contraception and family planning um, funding for um, low-income women mm -hmm. that's it and so now with this rule um, it's basically saying that if you are a health care provider who provides abortion or refers abortion or even talks about abortion to your patients you can no longer receive title 10 funding um, and so you, when you see the pattern of what this Trump, the Trump Pence administration is doing, when you see what the people on the other side are doing, um, this really is about you know making sure that women do not have access, individuals do not have access to all the choices that should be available um, as it relates to reproductive health care. Yeah. On the other flip side too, I think that the first reaction that you have, I, I go through a lot of emotions. I get angry. I get frustrated because like Acacia is doing right now, I give out a lot of information. I mean, one person approached me and said, well, I heard that non-medical pers personnel now can perform abortions under this new law. And I said, well, the first thing that I think is really important is that you actually look at the law. I said, before physician's assistants really weren't in existence at that point. This law now allows them, who are trained medical professionals, to be able to perform these procedures when necessary. I think the hardest part for me is people are writing my narrative. And that's the part that I find most frustrating. I think the best thing for us to do to begin to answer those questions is, we write the narrative. We let them know what's important, how passionate we are about it, not the opposite so way. So what would your narrative be then? So my narrative is, is that the first thing that's really important is that women's reproductive health care really is an extremely, not only is it important, it's an intimate part of my life. And for you to be able to create laws and rules about the most intimate part of my life is it's not only is it wrong, it's intrusive. And that at this point right now, you need to get out of my intimacy. And let's really start talking about the issues that are important for all of us and stop breaking down women and how I have to plan my family. And okay, I think so that's- what your narrative Yeah, and I, I would just underscore that. I mean, there's a sense that as a, as a woman, and, and I'm speaking as a, as a black woman as well, the policing of my body, mm -hmm. um, and the sense that you know the only person who should be making healthcare decisions about my well-being and concerning my family should be me and my physician, mm -hmm. um, but not a politician in Washington right. D.C., not a politician yeah. in Alabama or Georgia or Georgia. And the idea 
that, you know, I'm not trusted to make a qualified decision on behalf of myself and what's the best for my family um, is frankly insulting. Yeah, and I think the hardest part too is is that when that decision has to be made, the wrong people are at the table. Right. The only people at the table should obviously be the woman, her partner, her physician, and if necessary, her faith minister. Mm -hmm. Politicians should not be at that table at all. So what else has passed legislatively in addition to RHA that has been a bright spot? Okay. Um, you can take that one, Keisha. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Right, right. <laughs> yeah, I mean, well, there have been, there have been several things, but I was, we were all, I'm also thinking about the Comprehensive Contraception Coverage Act, also known as CCA, CCCA, codifies in New York State insurance law the requirement under the Federal Affordable Care Act that all health insurers provide cost-free contraceptive coverage at a, as a part of their insurance policies. And so basically what that means is that, you know, um, no woman or no individual should have to be, you know, providing a copay for their contraception. And um, another part of that law is being able to provide people with longer prescriptions. So, you know, going from maybe like six months to a year, um, because one of the things that we also know is that, you know, when you're doing those short-term prescriptions, um, it's, you know, there are sometimes gaps. Um, and if you are, you know, worst case scenario, an individual who's in a relationship where your partner may not want you to be doing contraception or something like that, for you to be able to have a year that you can be able to take care of yourself is incredibly helpful. And it, you know, helps with those gaps and it helps to reduce, um, you know, an unintended pregnancy. Yeah. I had a niece that was 22 years old and she was taking her reproductive health very seriously and she had wanted to access contraception. She had gone, she was um, still under her family's plan because we know under the ACA you can stay on that until you're 26. Um, her dad actually worked again for a religious organization and when she went to go to her gynecologist and access the uh, contraception, they said, well, the copay for that, um, no, there wasn't even a copay. She had to pay $60 for it. Now, my niece didn't have $60 a month to pay for this. And she says, well, why doesn't this fall under my insurance? And she and the doctor said, well, it's unfortunate, but the insurance that you have because of a religious objection, you are not allowed to have contraception under it. So now my niece called me and said, what am I going to do? You know, she didn't really, she wanted to take control of it. She didn't want to have to constantly rely on condoms. She says there's a lot that can go wrong with that. Mm -hmm. She says, I'm 22 years old. I just started my job. Uh, she was stuck between a rock and a hard place. You know, any contraception outside of using condoms, she was going to have to pay for. And it was her responsibility to do that. And I think a lot of people don't understand that it's still, in this day and age, extremely difficult for a lot of people to get the contraception coverage that they need. Mm -hmm. yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. So what else needs to be done legislatively and what other initiatives do we need to tell people to get behind, you know, when it comes to health care and reproductive rights? Well, you know, it, it's so funny. So, um, you know, Planned Parenthood, Hudson Peconic, um, they do their work through a reproductive justice lens. And basically, you know, when we're talking about reproductive justice, the idea is, is that individuals have autonomy. And so whether they decide to have a child or not to have a child. And if they decide to have a child, um, they want to be able to have a child in an environment which is healthy and thriving um, to enable them to be able to raise their children in the best possible circumstances. 
So, you know, it's really frustrating when, you know, Planned Parenthood, Hudson Connick is, is, is working towards those ends that we're still dealing with the issues of RHA. And I know that one of the things that Planned Parenthood at Simconic has is one of the largest prenatal programs um, in the Federation, in the Planned Parenthood Federation. Um, and they do provide prenatal services. And I know that Planned Parenthood at Simconic has also been doing a lot of visibility on the issue of the black maternal crisis. Um, as many of you know, um, there, you know, New York State is number 30 in terms of mm -hmm. uh, maternal morbidity in this country. And so um, if you are a black woman or a person of color, um, in certain, depending on where you are, you are four times more likely than your white counterpart to die of childbirth. I think it, the, the number goes even higher, up to almost 11 times more higher um, in New York City, I, but although I know that they've done a lot of work to try to lower that statistic. So for me, that is the reproductive health crisis we need to be talking about exactly. instead of right. six-week bans and, right. and things like that. Yeah. And during March, um, Hudson Peconic um, actually went up to Planned Parenthood. Hudson Peconic actually went up to Albany, and that was one of our really important talking points. And I remember I had sat with three different senators, and when I gave them statistics on it and we talked about it, they were actually surprised. Oh, sure. And really all we're asking for at this point right now is even just to begin the study. Yes. And to really find out what the cause of this is, yeah. because mm -hmm. that is a that is mm -hmm. a health crisis we need mm -hmm. to deal it, with. It's, it's absolutely a crisis, right? So we're we're very excited about the fact that you know one of our major uh, one of the major legislative issues um, with Planned Parenthood Hudson Peconic is that um, the governor has passed the Maternal mm -hmm. Mortality Review Board, and so we hope uh, that that work will really you know change the the statistics for yeah. um, the state of New York and make it a much safer place to be able yeah. to have a baby no matter the zip code that you're in, um, no matter the, the you know, socioeconomic background that you're a part of, and certainly no matter the racial, yeah. ethnic background that you are. We also know how important sex education is. Right. And one thing that we are actually advocating for and hoping to get um, in the schools really soon is comprehensive sex education. Because the earlier we begin to talk about this, the more responsible we can be um, about our family planning. And that's something else that we're working very right. hard on. Right, and talking about it in terms of healthy relationships and, and consent, and mm -hmm. which is important, and, and, you know, and how you think about it. Um, you know, um, you know, I think I've, I've talked to many Planned Parenthood sex educators, and, and, and one of the things, you know, in our day, we it was like first base. Well, you know, we got first, <laughs> yes. second, I mean, which is and totally... Then you, and then you stop talking about yeah. it. Right, exactly. Yeah, it's totally <laughs> antiquated. It's totally problematic. Right. Um, but, when they're, but when they're talking to, to young people, they talk about it in terms of a pizza. And it's like, mm -hmm. you know, when you order a pizza, it, it's, a, it's a process. And what do you say? Well, what kind of crust do you want? You know, mm -hmm. I don't know. Do you want thick crust? Do you want thin crust? Okay, what kind of cheese do you want? You know, <laughs> that kind of thing. You want pepperoni? Well, you know, I only want half a pepperoni. So let's do half a pepperoni. You know, and throughout that and throughout the, the conversation, it is a dialogue. Mm -hmm. And so understanding what your partner wants, what, understanding what your partner isn't comfortable with, and you respecting yeah. that process. So any tips for what people at home listening to this can do to become involved and help make a difference? Oh, absolutely. You know, um, our activists really are the core of um, our organization. So the first thing that I would definitely suggest is that you start making telephone calls to those legislators, our assembly, our senate, our governor, who have been so supportive and have actually pass the legislation that protects our reproductive health. Many of them are under attack 
and the more positive phone calls they get, the more likely they are to be able to move our legislation forward. And then as far as the 2020 elections go, I know that we have a really big national election coming up. That's really important. But we're also going to have um, our assembly elections as well. So it's really important that we begin to support all of those legislators that have done such a great job for us. And we need to celebrate our champions. Yeah. You know, we really need to let them know that we've got their back. Acacia? So I agree with everything that Amory would say, and I would just say, you know, from a personal note, we talked a lot about the misinformation that's happening in RHA, and I would just say, for all the activists out there, do not assume that the people that you love have the right information mm -hmm. about RHA. And I mean, I think it's just really important just to check in with your son and your daughter who's in college, or just to check in with your mom, you know, or your or the person who you have a gardening club with, or your <laughs> sorority sister, you know, whatever. Um, just to make sure that they have the correct information that RHA simply does this, that it codifies Roe v. Wade into state law, that you know, abortions that happen later in pregnancy um, are, are are something that you know can be agonizing. For women and their families and that we should make sure that we see them as a sense of um, compassion and care and that nine-month abortions is not the way that health care works um, and we have to just continue to, 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 to talk about this and make sure that we understand that all of these bans all of this mis misinformation all of these just outright lies are simply attacks against um, women's ability to be able to have safe and legal abortions Joined now on the phone by Catherine Letterer Pleskett. She is the president of WCLA Choice Matters. Catherine, thank you so much for joining us today. Tell me, what is Choice Matters and what's the work that you do? First, thank you so much for having me. Uh, WCLA Choice Matters was founded in 1972. Its original name was Westchester Coalition for Legal Abortion, which is the acronym WCLA. We were founded in 1972 because New York was having a revolt from the right wing to overturn New York's abortion law that became law in 1970. And the women who founded this organization were very smart. They made a deal with elected officials saying, we will keep you in office and we will get only pro-choice candidates elected and anti-choice candidates defeated if you stand by us. That was the pact they made in 1972. Choice Matters now continues that 47 years later, we're the oldest ongoing pro-choice advocacy organization in the nation. In 1973, most organizations stopped functioning when Roe was decided. But the women who founded this organization said the battle will never be over. And unfortunately, we see that all too correctly today in Alabama, Georgia, Ohio, and, and the list is unfortunately endless. Why is it important, especially in this political environment, to elect pro-choice candidates? That's a very good question. The way people are arguing these days is in intersectionality. You can be for immigration rights and for sensible gun legislation and for choice. Or you can be any combination, using an example of these three items. We believe that if our issue is number 100 on a candidate's level of importance. In other words, all these other issues come first. You don't do us any good. 
it's not just that a candidate must be pro-choice, but a candidate must truly vote that issue, because otherwise they will trade on that issue. We just heard from a candidate running for president who had a questionable record on choice that his position on the Hyde Amendment had changed, but when asked whether he would still vote for anything that contained the Hyde Amendment, he wouldn't answer. In other words, he was still willing to trade on choice. That is not a candidate who will strongly represent us. So, Catherine, you put out what you refer to kind of as a yellow guide, a voter's guide for elections. It's a bright yellow pro-choice voting guide. It's our trademark. Yes. Explain to me what that is. Again, many groups will do endorsements. We list the candidates both running. For example, there'll be a Republican and a Democrat and maybe a Green Party. And we send questionnaires to everyone. We, Choice Matters, because of New York state law, do not endorse. We rate. Our PACs, WCLA PAC, which is our state PAC, and Pro-Choice Voter, which is our federal PAC, do the endorsements. They abide by the ratings of the Choice Matters Board, which is all legalese for following what we need to do. Mm-hmm. What happens, though, is we create a record so that if you decide to rewrite your history when you run in 10 years from now, our document of all candidates will still be in existence. A few years ago, we had some candidates resurrect themselves and try to deny that they had been adamantly anti-choice. You're allowed to change but you're not allowed to rewrite history. Mm-hmm. So our document writes, our voting guide says in dark blue, Betty Smith is pro-choice and endorsed. We may have a pro-choice candidate who is not endorsed, and then we may have a candidate who we rated anti-choice. All of that will appear in the voting guide so that you get a full context. You don't vote, walk into the voting booth and not know everything you will see. The other part of this that is really, really important is our endorsements are not made simply because Choice may be your number one issue. We vote for the candidates, we endorse the candidates and ask you to vote for them who are best at advancing the issue of choice. You may have two candidates. For example, in 2018, we had Alessandro Biaggi and Jeff Klein running in the primary, both answering an excellent questionnaire. Jeff had the, uh, Senator Klein had the bad voting record of standing in the way of advancing reproductive rights, although he could have been rated 100% pro-choice in what he wrote or what he said. His deeds spoke differently. Alessandro Biaggi, a newbie, but still a very staunch supporter of reproductive rights, was the candidate we endorsed and pushed because Choice Matters rated Alessandro 100% pro-choice, and then the PAC went to the mat for her. So, Catherine, let me ask you a question. If, if an election is coming up and I'm listening to this podcast and I want to find your yellow guide, where do I find it? Where do I look for it? You look for it. If, it's, if it is a federal election, you'll look for it on, on prochoicevoter.org, prochoicevoter.org. And you'll, if it's a state, it's wclapac.org. I want to make one point that's very important. Often people say, oh, you like Planned Parenthood. No. What has been the history of the two organizations working together is Planned Parenthood provides the services and we keep the services legal. And that is the difference. Planned Parenthood will have endorsements on different levels of state. They have one group that does it, local is another. We do the statewide and we fight 
all the time for that. It doesn't get confused with funding or anything like that. Our job is to keep those laws, those services legal. Catherine, how do we keep elected officials once they're elected accountable? Don't fall in love with them. One of the big problems these days is when I look around Westchester County, for example, people fall in love with those candidates they elected to office and thereby they generally fail to hold those same people accountable. You can't become your candidate's friend, you have to become the employer. We employ these people and we constantly have to do job evaluations. And if those people know that you won't hold them accountable, they won't necessarily do what you hired them to do. So you have to walk with a big stick and remember to vote and remember to read your Yellow Pro-Choice Voting Guide. Catherine, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. And thank you for having me. So what's up with 2020? Ladies, what are you looking for in a candidate? What do you want to hear from them? What should they be saying when it comes to reproductive rights? Well, um, I want someone who really understands how important um, reproductive health care is. It's going to be one of the defining issues of the election. And so I want someone who, un who can understand and really support the expansion of reproductive health care access mm -hmm. um, and be confident about that. Yeah. I want somebody that, again, knows um, the information, but also is a really good listener. Because, mm -hmm. you know, I know that everybody has a different entry point when it comes into reproductive health. And sometimes you take your own personal experience, and that's really as far as you can get. So I want to make sure that whoever I'm going to be able to vote for is going to be able to listen to all sides of the coin from all different perspectives and from all different groups and to honor that. And today's thumbs up. What do you give a thumbs up to, Acacia? You know, my thumbs up is that regardless of all of these really egregious attacks against reproductive health care, um, America really supports abortion. Over 70% of Americans support, support abortion, and I think that's something to really be cheerful about and, and really continue to combat all of these really egregious attacks. Anne-Marie? Yeah. For me, it's really what's happening here in New York State. We just closed our legislative um, agenda here in uh, New York State, and it's really all the wonderful progressive legislation that we passed for our Planned Parenthood Hudson Peconic patients, and I, I'm looking forward to see how far we go in September when we get back into session. What's our thumbs down? What's not so hot? All right, so let me give you a little bit of context. We're talking about the gag rule and the fact that it is now um, in place. So what is the gag rule you're probably thinking about? Um, remember when I told you earlier about Title X funding, which once again, Title X funding is a federal program that provides family planning and contraception, to, um, contraception services to low-income women. Well, the gag rule basically means that if you are a healthcare provider that provides abortions or refers abortions or talks about abortions, you are no longer entitled to receive Title X um, funding. Um, so up until this month, well, the month of June, um, there was a nationwide injunction on that. That injunction has been lifted and um, the gag rule is now in place 
which means that Planned Parenthood health centers like Hudson Peconic um, are now no longer able to receive Title X funding um, to be able to take care of their patients. And as many of you know, um, this Title X funding disproportionately affects women of color and low-income women. So this is definitely a thumbs down. Yeah. My, my thumbs down is, is that here I am in 2019 and I still have to go out and march and protest that the women who came before me have done so much groundbreaking work and I feel like I have to go back, repeat what they did so that I can just move us forward. So I will continue to march. I will continue to have my voice heard, but thumbs down that in 2019, I'm going, the, the clock is turned back instead of forward. It's still a fight. This has been Indivisible Westchester, the podcast. Be sure to find us online at www.indivisiblewestchester.org, on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Keep resisting.